1 Peter 4, 7-11 is set between two passages dealing with persecution. As well, in both 1 Peter 4, 1-6 and 1 Peter 4, 12-19, Peter reminds his readers that Christ will return to judge all people. 1 Peter 4, 5, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 1 Peter 4, 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now in verses 7 through 11, Peter admonishes the church on how to live in the light of the coming judgment. And he addresses three facts. First, the coming judgment. Second, godly living. And third, the glory of God. Living in light of the coming judgment. As we begin in verse 7, we're going to see what Peter has to say about the coming judgment. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now Peter referenced the final judgment in the previous paragraph as being the great white throne and continues with that theme in this paragraph. The end refers to a point in time when something will be terminated. That something is all things or everything in the created realm. The verb is near meaning at hand or imminent, is in the perfect tense. And throughout the New Testament, the use of the perfect tense of agizo is always used regarding the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' first advent inaugurated the beginning of the end. The end is the imminent coming of God's kingdom. Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4:17. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Mark 1:15 and saying, "The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Since Christ returned to heaven, we have been living in the last days. That is the days before the end. The end is a series of events beginning with the rapture of the church and ending with the renewed heavens and earth. It is known in Scripture as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a critical premise in the prophecies of Isaiah, Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah. The use of the term day, yom, in prophetical writings depicts a period that, like an actual biblical day, begins with evening or sunset and ends with the next evening or sunset. Thus, the parts of a prophetic day would be sunset, night, sunrise, daytime, sunset. Prophetically, the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church and ends with the renewed heavens and earth. So sunset would begin with the rapture. Night would be equivalent to the tribulation. Sunrise would be equivalent to the return of Jesus. 
daytime would be equivalent to the millennial reign of Christ, and then sunset would be the great white throne and the renewed heavens and earth. Now the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night because there are no warning signs. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Listen carefully, believer. Nowhere in Scripture are you or I commanded to be looking for signs of the times. I'll say that again. Nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to be looking for the signs of the times. The signs of Matthew 24 are for those living in the tribulation. Any professed believer who sees those signs is in for a rude awakening. Instead, as the church, as the bride of Christ, we are to be looking for our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Now when the rapture occurs, Jesus will appear in the sky for his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. From Pentecost till the rapture, all believers will be caught up into heaven, both the living and the dead. Following the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation begins, and its primary focus is on bringing an end to the Gentile domination and bringing Israel to repentance. Immediately after the tribulation, Christ will return. Matthew 24, 29 to 30 and 25, 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. This is known as the second coming of Christ. His second coming to earth will be literal and bodily. Following His return, Christ will establish His kingdom on earth for 1,000 years, after which it will merge with God's eternal kingdom. Daniel 2.44 In those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Now as one examines the day of the Lord, it becomes evident that a significant feature of the end is judgment. The day begins with the removal of the church and the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's removed, his ministry of holding back wickedness ceases, paving the way for a series of judgments throughout the tribulation. 
When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, he will judge the living, inviting the righteous into his kingdom and casting the unrighteous into hell. Finally, after his millennial reign, there will be the great white throne judgment in which God the Father will judge all the unregenerate, the living and the dead, and cast them into the lake of fire for all eternity. So, living in light of coming judgment. The coming judgment is the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. And there's going to be a series of judgments. Whether it's the rapture and the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, whether it's the return of Christ to earth and the judgment of the regenerate and unregenerate in his kingdom, or ultimately the great white throne and the judgment of the unregenerate. Judgment is coming. We're living in the time leading up to that judgment. Now the therefore in verse 7 connects the following commands to the previous statement, the end of all things is near. In other words, the pending judgments of the end are to be an impetus to you and me to live godly lives. Romans 13 verse 11 and 12. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 6. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, the list of commands or virtues that follow is known as a paranesis from the Greek term paraneo, meaning strong advice. A paranesis is a moral and ethical exhortation based on common religious or moral convictions. And the New Testament is filled with a significant number of frenetical passages, or paranesis, particularly amongst the epistles. One such paranesis is found in Romans 12, 9-21, and includes similar themes to 1 Peter. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Preserving in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil to, for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, because judgment is coming, believers are to exercise sound judgment and a sober spirit. Verse 7, Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The first virtue that we're going to discuss is exercising sound judgment and a sober spirit. These two verbs are synonymous and are both attached to the term prayer. Sound judgment refers to self-control over one's passions and desire. The Greek term for sound judgment, sophroneo, is used in Mark 5.15 to denote the formerly demon-possessed man who is now in his right mind. Sober means to control one's thoughts and not give in to irrational thinking. Peter previously exhorted us to keep sober in spirit so to not conform to the former lust, 1 Peter 1, 13-14. In other words, we are to be of sound mind and sensible. But today, too many believers are ruled by their passions and are irrational in their thinking. And believer, if you don't have control over your desires or passions, then you are not prepared for action, and you are exposed to enticements which will draw you away from God. And such irrational thinking demonstrates that your mind needs to be renewed. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23. Now the Holy Spirit accomplishes this renewal of the mind. And his renewing of the mind only occurs as you yield your mind to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The phrase in Romans 8.14, are being led, means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Having your mind controlled by the Holy Spirit means that you are laser focused on God's Word, not on conspiracy theories, what ifs, or other such nonsense. Believer, a spirit-controlled mind, saturated with God's word, processes the circumstances of this life through the lens of prayer. Indeed, prayer is our most important weapon in times of persecution and temptation. Believer, what is your mind focused on? Are you laser focused on the Word of God or is your mind filled with nonsense, conspiracy theories, what ifs, shoulda, woulda, couldas? What is your mind focused on? And if you're not focused on the Word of God, I challenge you to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and pray to God for forgiveness and that He might renew your mind, that He would get rid of the clutter that's in there, sweep it out, and fill your mind with what's important, the Word of God. So the first virtue that we're to have as we live godly, or to exercise sound judgment and a sober spirit. Second, 
Godly living means that we're to exercise fervent love for one another. We're to exercise fervent love for one another. Verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. See, because judgment is coming, we need to exercise fervent love for one another. The term love in the phrase love one another is agapeo. Agape love is sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. In other words, it is a love that practically gives without getting bent out of shape when it does not receive a thank you in response. It is not merely an expression of your emotion, but your volition. Agape love is choosing to do good even towards the unlikable and unlovable. You know, it's easy to love the lovable, but difficult to love the unlovable. Peter states that we are to keep fervent in our love above all. That prepositional phrase, above all, means before all other things. In other words, fervent love for one another is the preeminent virtue of all these virtues. Indeed, this reflects the heart of God's law. To, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Furthermore, loving one another is the fulfillment of the law of the king. James 2.8 If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, otherwise known as the law of the king, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And it is this love for one another that the world will know whether or not you are a disciple of Christ. John 13.35 By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How you act and behave towards your fellow brother or sister in Christ is going to tell the world whether or not you're a disciple of Christ. That's something to think about, isn't it? How do you treat your brother or sister in Christ? Do you treat them with agape love? Or do you treat them like the gum on the bottom of your shoe? We must heed Jesus' warning regarding the end. Matthew 24, 12, he said, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Believer, we must not allow our love for God or our love for one another to grow cold. Furthermore, he says here that we are to keep fervent in our love. The term keep is an imperative denoting a command. It means maintaining a particular position or activity. Fervent means to be marked by care with intense, persistent effort. It's an athletic term that characterizes an athlete using all of their strength to compete. In essence, to love fervently requires all of one's strength. Back in 1 Peter 1.22, Peter admonished his readers to love fervently from the heart or with one's emotions. That means that you and I are to love one another with intense, 
persistent physical effort and emotion. The term keep is an imperative, meaning that we need to maintain this particular position or activity. We are to maintain intense, persistent effort and emotion in loving one another. How about it, believer? Are you persistently and intensely loving, not just the lovable, but the unlovable? Think about, the, think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now think about that quote-unquote brother or sister in Christ who just rubs you the wrong way or that you don't particularly care for. And the Bible says that you are to persistently and intensely love them, sacrifice for them, and expect nothing in return. And the reason we are to love fervently is that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, what is meant by this quote from Proverbs 10, 12? The verb covers means to overlook and not punish. It does not mean that love for others is going to atone for your sins. Instead, it means that when believers sacrificially seek the highest good of the other person, they're going to overlook the offenses of the other person and not seek to punish them. As Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's easy to get offended. It's easy to uh, take the offense and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I want them punished. You know, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to show them. I'm going to correct them. But if you love them, then there's some things that you're just simply going to overlook and not punish. Now certainly there are things that do require punishment. But there are other things out there that don't matter in the landscape of the coming judgment. As Paul again states in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now examining the full statement of Proverbs 10, 12, the verse also states that hatred stirs up strife. In other words, those who use the sins of others to attack and retaliate against them are full of hatred. So fervent love for one another means forgiving sins committed against each other and not retaliating. And sometimes just letting it go. Stop nitpicking. So, we're living in light of the coming judgment. Godly living requires exercising sound judgment and a sober spirit. It requires exercising fervent love for one another. And it requires exercising hospitality towards one another. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. You see, because judgment is coming, we are to exercise hospitality to one another. 
Hospitality comes from two Greek words, philos, meaning brotherly love, and xenos, meaning stranger. Hence, hospitality is love for strangers. The term one another clarifies that these strangers are fellow believers. And the purpose of hospitality is to treat unknown believers as part of your family or community. Now, during the first century A.D., hospitality was critical to advancing the gospel due to the cost of travel and lodging. Following the teachings of Jesus, the early church encouraged believers to be hospitable to those who went out ministering the gospel. Matthew 10, 11. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, in other words, who is a believer, and stay at his house until you leave that city. Acts 16, 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. 3 John 7 and 8. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. It became necessary for believers to demonstrate brotherly love to believers who they did not know. Such hospitality included providing them with bathing amenities, food, overnight accommodations, new clothes, entertainment, supplies, lodging, and food for their animals, and sometimes a costly gift when they left. And it meant meeting the needs of these unknown believers with no expectation of anything in return. That's hospitality. See, we all got an opinion on what hospitality is and what it means to be a hospitable person. Biblically speaking, hospitality, when it says to be hospitable, it doesn't just mean, oh, invite, invite your friend over for coffee or invite somebody over for dinner. I mean, that's hospitable in the English sense of the word, but you're not obeying the biblical command. The biblical command here to exercise hospitality is to show brotherly love to strangers, to believers you do not particularly know or that aren't part of your family, your church community. And again, I'll read this list here. It means providing them with bathing amenities, food, overnight accommodations, new clothes, entertainment, supplies, lodging, food for their animals, you can modernize that, gas for their vehicles, and sometimes a costly gift when they left. And my friends, listen, Christ is going to examine the hospitality offered to his brothers as the determinant in rendering judgment when he returns. Matthew 25, 35 to 46. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did you, we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Notice the particular wording of his statement. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. That is hospitality. It's showing brotherly love or kindness to someone, a fellow believer, but unknown. Now the other statements of having his needs or provisions met fits the earlier definition of hospitality in the first century A.D. And it should also be underscored that Jesus states that they were to be hospitable to these brothers of mine, even the least of them. Kevin DeYoung states that the least of them refers to, quote, believers in need, specifically itinerant Christian teachers dependent on other Christians for hospitality and support. So these deeds of hospitality are the manifestation or fruit of your faith. And this hospitality provides Christ with the criteria to judge whether an individual's faith is real or false, alive or dead. Those who possess fruitful faith, those who have displayed biblical hospitality, will enter the kingdom of God. That hospitality didn't save them. That hospitality demonstrated they were truly saved. Those who possess fruitless faith will be cast into hell. So there's plenty of believers out there in name only. They don't have a, a stitch of hospitality in them. Again, we're talking biblical hospitality. Okay, listen, some people thrive on having people over, and that's great. Other people don't, and that's fine too. But that's not what he's talking about here. Biblical hospitality is providing for particularly strangers who are believers. As Matthew 25 demonstrates, believers must extend hospitality to one another, but above all, to those who labor and work in the ministry of the gospel. So if you're looking at how does that apply today, listen, where are the itinerant Christian preachers and teachers? Oh, that's right, they're called missionaries. So this hospitality, when it tells us to be hospitable throughout the New Testament, they're the strangers. Again, typically missionaries, unless they come right out of our own church, are going to be strangers to us. We're not going to know them intimately and personally. We're going to know them by association. But we're commanded here to be hospitable to them, to show brotherly love for them. And again, let me remind you what that means. Here's how you ought to be hospitable and be obedient when you have opportunity provide for your missionaries whether it's bathing amenities 
food, perhaps overnight accommodations, maybe it's new clothes, maybe it's entertainment when they're home on furlough, maybe it's supplies they need at home or on the field, lodging, as I said, gas for their vehicles, fuel for their uh, house, whatever they may need, sometimes even giving them a gift when they head back to the field. That's hospitality. So stop fooling yourself into what you think is hospitality and making yourself feel good. Hey, listen, that, that can fall under brotherly love. You, you, you want to have people over and you want to do this, you want to take somebody here and you want to go, that's great. That's brotherly love. Hospitality is to the unknown believers. I'll stress it again. Strangers who are believers. And the modern equivalent of that is our missionaries, our itinerant preachers and teachers. And notice he says here that it's to be done without complaint. Complaint means to murmur or mutter. Hospitality is burdensome. Listen, caring for the needs of others is costly, it's time-consuming, and it can even be emotionally draining. But under those conditions, it's easy to understand why some would complain. Nonetheless, when Peter says to be hospitable without complaint, he means to do it cheerfully. And the motivation for you and I to be hospitable and do it cheerfully is that we've each received hospitality from God. We were once enemies of God, strangers of God, and we were invited into His house. We were treated like family. And so, believer, if you've got the opportunity to extend hospitality to a missionary, to a traveling preacher, teacher, evangelist, what have you, when you have the opportunity to extend the hospitality, then you are testifying to what God has done for you. And so you get that opportunity. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. Because again, remember, Christ is going to be looking at our hospitality to them as a determination of whether our faith is real or not. And that should be a sobering thought. So, godly living. We're living in light of the coming judgment. So far, godly living, we've seen we're to exercise sound judgment and a sober spirit. We're to exercise fervent love for one another. We're to exercise hospitality to one another. And finally, we're to exercise spiritual gifts to one another. Verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold graces of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Because judgment is coming, we ought to be exercising our spiritual gifts. Well, Pastor, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, I would suggest after listening to the remainder of this sermon, you do some research, and if necessary, contact me or, or uh, another brother or sister in Christ with spiritual maturity, and ask them, how do I find my spiritual gift? Now notice the phrase, as each one, indicates that every believer has at least one gift. And the term gift, charisma, refers to special graces given to believers at the moment of salvation by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 3 and 6. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment, 
as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Because these gifts are bestowments of God's grace, we cannot boast about our gift. Oh, look at me, I've got the gift of whatever. How wonderful I am, how great I am. No, you can't do that because it's a gift from God. We're to employ our gifts by serving one another. And that verbal phrase, employ it in serving, that's one Greek word, diakoneo, it means to minister to the needs of others. And again, the term one another clarifies these gifts are to minister to the needs of fellow believers. Hence, spiritual gifts are the means of building up the body of Christ, not building your self-esteem. And besides 1 Peter 4.11, there are three other passages that outline the various spiritual gifts available. Romans 12.6-8, 1 Corinthians 12.6-10, and 1 Corinthians 12.28. In Romans 12, there is the gift of prophesying, that's foretelling, ministering or serving, teaching, exhortation or encouraging, giving, ruling or leading, and mercy. In 1 Corinthians 12, 6-10, there's the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, there's miracles, healing, helping, government or administration, and tongues. And then in 1 Peter 4, there's speaking and serving. We can break down the gifts of the Holy Spirit into two divisions. That is, there are gifts that are functional, and there are gifts that are durative. Here, Peter is dealing with the functional gifts. In other words, he's classifying the gifts as to relate to those that are serving and those that are speaking. The durative division of gifts would be those gifts that were temporary versus those that are permanent. Uh, let me just give you a brief overview. When we're talking about functional gifts, there are speaking gifts, prophesying, teaching, exhortation, tongues, interpretation of tongues, distinguishing of spirits, message of wisdom, message of knowledge. And on the other side of that, there are serving gifts, such as giving, government, mercy, faith, healing, miracles, helping, ministering, and ruling. That's how gifts function. You either have a serving gift or you have a speaking gift. As to the durative division, some gifts were temporary, others are permanent. The temporary gifts are the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Those nine gifts have ceased. The permanent, the ones that are still around, the gifts that are available that you and I have been given are teaching, helping, exhorting, governing, giving, mercy, ministering, and ruling. Those nine gifts that I mentioned a moment ago, those temporary gifts, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, tongues, and interpretation of tongues, have ceased, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Now let me just be very clear that when 1 Corinthians says, we know in part and prophesy in part, that word in part refers to something that is part of something more significant. In other words, those gifts, prophecy, tongue, etc., are part of something bigger. When the perfect comes, now the perfect does not refer to Jesus. Okay? 
Perfect means completion or maturity, not sinlessness. Furthermore, it's a neuter noun, meaning that it's a something, not a someone. So those things in part, prophecy, tongues, wisdom, knowledge, faith, etc., are part of something bigger, that's scripture or revelation. Those gifts had a revelatory purpose. Once scripture was completed, there's no longer a need for those sign gifts. Okay? The scripture com was completed no later than AD 100, and as such, those gifts, including tongues, were discontinued. Prophecy, knowledge, all rendered inactive. Now, returning to verses 10 and 11, Peter encourages believers to use their spiritual gifts to minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The term stewards here refers to the management of another's affairs. Good describes the steward as honorable, useful, and virtuous in executing their duties as stewards. In other words, you are to use your spiritual gifts to manage God's manifold grace. And when we use our gifts to serve others, God views you and me as honorable managers of His gifts. Are you using your spiritual gift? If you're not, you are an unfaithful steward. You're an unfaithful steward. And that's not pleasing to God. Find your gift, use your gift. If you know your gift, use your gift. If you're not using it, get to it. Next, Peter explains how we exercise our spiritual gifts as good stewards. First, he refers to the speaking gifts. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. The word utterances is sometimes translated as oracles in the scripture. It refers to the words of God given to believers. So if you've got the gift of teaching or the gift of exhortation slash encouragement, you're to use those gifts to declare the word of God, not your opinion or viewpoint. There's no room in the ministering of God's word for viewpoints and opinions. We need to be faithful in our handling of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Second, Peter refers to the serving gifts. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. This is interesting. In classical Greek, the term serve means to pay the expenses of a chorus or choir. Interestingly, Peter employs some wordplay here. So the Greek term korygeo, translated here as supplies, refers to the choir director who supplied the choir at his own expense. In other words, at his expense, God the choir director supplies believers, that's you and I, the choir, with the necessary tools to serve. Therefore, you and I, at our expense, are to serve others with our spiritual gifts of service. But sadly, we got too many believers today who don't want to be inconvenienced. They want everything in a nice, tight little box. Here to here, that's it. When this is done, I'm going, I want out. No, it's about serving the Lord, and it's serving others, and it's at your expense, not theirs. So we're living in light of coming judgment. We know the coming judgment 
what that is. The godly living that we're supposed to be doing means exercising sound judgment and a sober spirit, exercising fervent love for one another, exercising hospitality towards one another, exercising spiritual gifts to one another, and that now brings us then to the glory of God. Verse 11. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of judgment living, of godly living, is so that God may be glorified. All things refers to the four instructions just delivered. How these four virtues will glorify God is through Jesus Christ. In other words, the divine enablement needed to follow these four virtues comes through Him. Not only does Christ provide us with the divine enablement, He gives us the example to follow. The verbal phrase, may be glorified, means relating to worshiping God in word and deed. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. When we follow His example, Christ's example, and obey these virtues, follow these virtues, we are worshiping God. Now continuing the theme of God's glory, Peter concludes this section of his epistle with a doxology. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This doxology is based on Daniel 7.14, and, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Daniel's prophecy is regarding Christ's future reign as king. Therefore, it informs us that the to whom in the doxology refers to Christ. To Christ belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. He is Lord of all and is to be worshipped as such. Living in light of the coming judgment is recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as believers, we are to submit to His Lordship. And if you are submitting, if I'm submitting, if we're submitting to His Lordship, then we're going to discipline our minds to be serious and sober. We're going to get laser focused on the Scripture. We're going to display a love that is fervent and forgiving. And we're going to direct hospitalities to those who are advancing the gospel. And finally, we're going to develop our spiritual gifts to the mutual benefit of one another. Father in heaven, I thank you for this text you've given to us. I thank you, Father, for the challenges in it. Because, Lord, indeed, we are living in light of coming judgment. And judgment will begin in the household of God. It will begin in the church. And so, Father, in light of the end, I pray that you'd help us in these four virtues, these four commands, these instructions, that, Father God, we would be sober-minded, that, Lord, we might be fervent and forgiving with our love, that, Father, we might have hospitality to those who are advancing the gospel. And finally, Father, that we might develop our spiritual gifts. Father, if there's someone listening who, who claims to be a, a child of yours, claims to be a believer, 
But Father is lacking in these areas. And I pray that you might move and work in their heart, his heart or her heart, to ask themselves why these things aren't evident in their life. Because, Lord, you're going to be looking for these things. And you're going to merit judgment according to these virtues. Again, these virtues don't save us, Lord. Only you do that. But those who you have truly saved will do these things. Father, we thank and praise you again for this word. Thank you for the imminent return of Christ. And Lord, may we be always watchful and waiting. We pray in his name. Amen.